Please turn now to Psalm 68 for the sermon text, which is but one part of one verse. Psalm 68, verse 34a. Ascribe power to God, or as in the old King James, ascribe ye strength unto God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us now pray his blessing upon its preaching. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is inspired by your Holy Spirit. And we, your people, are called and regenerated by that selfsame Holy Spirit. We ask now, O Lord, that you would grant us the presence and power of your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds to understand this, this word. And we pray this for your glory and for our good. And it is in Christ's name that we pray, whose word this is. Amen. Congregation, I find today's sermon text, brief though it is, to be an extremely important one. Much more important than one might think as one passes over it while conducting their private devotions. And I say this because the record of Scripture contains so very many instances when God's people have failed to obey this command to ascribe strength unto him. And because there are so many instances in our lives when we are given the opportunity to glorify God, if we can bring ourselves to ascribe strength unto him. But congregation, there's the rub. We so seldom think to do it. And when we think to, we too often fail to follow through and actually do it. We know that we're supposed to ascribe strength unto our God. When we're in the midst of affliction or tribulation, or when we are persecuted by men, but knowing and doing are two very different things. We know intellectually that he is able to deliver us, that he is mightier than whatever confronts us. But we are too often fearful and anxious as though he were not. We are told in scripture about our duty to ascribe strength unto our God but like the man spoken of in James, or by James in his epistle, we are much more easily hearers than doers of this word. James writes, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. It's like that. We hear, we know that we should ascribe strength unto our God. We recognize that as true. And then we walk away, forgetting all the certainty that we enjoyed the moment we had heard that. Now this sermon is a summons. It's an exhortation to us all to ascribe strength unto our God. To be doers and not merely, merely hearers of this word. That we might not forget to place our trust in God and locate all of our fear in the fear of the Lord, rather than in the fear of the creature or of circumstances. So the first part of today's sermon I, I have entitled, Ascribe ye strength unto God, 
before the fact. What causes us to fail to ascribe strength unto our God, to trust in him when things go awry? Is it merely fear? One might sensibly assume so. Let's consider a biblical example. The Lord had promised to drive the Canaanites out before Israel by his might. Yet Israel, when they came to the borders of the promised land, they became fearful, thinking that the walls were just a bit too high and the natives of the land a bit too tall. But what caused the Israelites to feel dread and fear at the might of their foes? What caused them to grumble and to complain? What drove them to murmur against God's goodness? And so to earn that nickname from God, that loathsome generation. What prompted them to fail to ascribe strength unto their God that was sufficient to do all that he had promised? Was it simply fear? According to scripture, all this was actually due to unbelief. Consider Hebrews 3, which says, We see that they, the Israelites, were unable to enter the land because of unbelief. Israel's failure to enter the land for fear of their enemy's superior strength and resources is shown in Scripture to have had its root in unbelief. As one Puritan minister put it, the spring and cause of fear is unbelief and an unworthy distrust of God when we dare not rely upon the security of a divine promise nor trust to God's protection in the way of our duty. Now this is not said to suggest that any fear or any distrust that you have is evidence that you are an unbeliever. An unbeliever just like those of that loathsome generation. Rather, it is meant to show you that any fear that we have of what men can do to us or how circumstances can threaten us evidences that sinful degrees of unbelief remain within us. As our Lord said, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? It's not the, that the apostles had no faith when the storm came upon them on the Sea of Galilee. Rather, their fault was in having too little of it. This remaining unbelief in us needs to be addressed and eliminated by watchfulness and prayer. Unbelief is the contrary of ascribing strength unto our God, and its fruit is this fear of what may befall us, this dread of the creature and of circumstances. Or to put another and more pointed way, it is really just your fear of God's providence, your fear of God's plan for your life. So we must not imitate that generation in its murmuring and in its doubting, in its unbelief. Elsewhere, Paul informs us that these things happened to the Israelites as an example, and they were written down for your instruction that you might, uh, might not do as they did. Before entering the land, Israel's failure was in not ascribing strength unto their God. They expected the worst. 
Sure, God is powerful. Sure, God is in covenant with us. Sure, he keeps his promises. But look at those walls. Look at the size of those people. If only Israel had remembered past deliverances, they would have been well-armed indeed against temptations to fear and distrust of God's strength now. How many of us are able to look back on his wonders and his deliverances in our own desert wanderings, but fail to remember them when new trials arise? You must arm yourselves against that day by resolving today to adopt a new policy, that you will always endeavor to ascribe strength unto your God. You must remember this as a duty imposed upon you by your Lord, if you are going to carry it out. You must replace trust in man, including trust in yourselves, your resources, your wits, with trust in God for your deliverance, and fear of God for fear of man or circumstances, by dwelling on what may happen to you. Here's another quote. To trust in any created thing, as if it had the power of a God to help us, or to fear any created thing, as if it had the power of a God to hurt us, is exceedingly sinful and highly provoking to God. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, God says, I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou that thou shouldest, make, that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the son of a man, which shall be made as grass, and forgettest the Lord thy maker. Our present attitudes about his ability and eagerness to deliver us are important to him, such that he inquires of his people several times throughout Scripture. Is my hand shortened at all, that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Now for the second part of today's sermon. Ascribe ye strength unto God in the midst of it. Not only must we forearm ourselves against future sinful doubts and remaining unbelief by determining as our policy that we are going to ascribe strength unto our God when troubles should come, we must make the effort, a supreme effort if need be, to remember to ascribe strength unto our God when trouble actually does befall us. This is sadly very hard for sinners to remember to do. Consider Psalm 50, verse 15. The Lord says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and you shall glorify me. According to the psalmist, Human trouble, human pleas for aid, and our deliverance, these are all things that are instrumental for his glory. And that language has a certain, almost an algorithmic feel about it. First comes trouble, then comes calling upon him, then comes our deliverance at his hand, then comes our glorifying him. Or perhaps it is by means of our calling upon him that he will receive the glory. If we are not calling upon him in the day of trouble, we are not doing our part in this God-glorifying 
chain of events. If there's no calling on him in your day of trouble, how can you expect divine deliverance, at least in such a way that results in your glorifying him? And rest assured, the Lord is going to send you trouble, as he has in times past, and this for the purpose of getting glory. Glory from the faith and trust in his might by his servants, Glory from his having delivered us himself. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And as he writes again in Romans 8, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Troubles, tribulations, persecutions, and afflictions are coming upon you, beloved, if you are his. These things, we are told, are appointed unto us. For before the crown must come the cross. You follow in the same pattern of your Lord, in that you too move from suffering to glory. This giving glory to God while you suffer, entrusting him and ascribing strength unto him, is your passive obedience. It is your duty to bear up under it in a way that glorifies God. You must submit to it. Even more, you must seek to glorify him in the midst of it. One certain way to glorify God in your sufferings is to call upon him to look for your deliverance from him. And in this, you will ascribe strength unto your God. Do not seek or expect, therefore, a trouble-free life, nor be amazed when the trouble comes. For we Christians, we are told in Scripture, are born and we are bred for trouble. According to the Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God. And our troubles and trials rightly handled, are instrumental to God's glory in a way that prosperity and peace never could be, which is perhaps why trials are so frequently promised us and earthly prosperity and peace is not. In 1 Peter 4, we find this language. Beloved, do not be surprised that the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, congregation, few of us are sanctified enough to pray for suffering. But all of us must recall these things and accept suffering when it comes, and try, against every temptation not to, to pray through the suffering, and even to praise through the suffering. You must not, like worldlings, wonder why adversity comes, as though something strange or abnormal were occurring. You must also not succumb to the temptation of finding evidence in your suffering of some fault or perversity in God. 
If any fault or perversity is to be inferred from the fact that we suffer, the fault or perversity must be located in us, or at least in our thoughts about God and not in himself. Our suffering not only serves the primary purpose of glorifying him, and it not only identifies us with the Lord Jesus Christ and conforms us to his image, it also serves the other purpose of purging us of indwelling sin and creature confidence. As another Puritan minister said, there is a sanctified use of all troubles to God's children. Troubles, he adds, drive Christians out of themselves and draws them nearer to God. The fire of adversity serves to separate his gold from our dross. True gold is never destroyed by fire. It is merely purified by it. It is made finer. It is made purer. You are right now being sculpted for an eternity with God. And the blows of his chisel will hurt. You go through these things for his glory and for your good. These troubled mortal lives of ours are in reality, but the anteroom, the foyer of our existence, where we stomp our shoes, as it were, to leave behind us all that filth and dirt before entering our home. The master of that house won't have us tracking into his mansions all the rubbish and filth we have on us by our fallen nature and habits. So see your momentary afflictions the way the Lord sees them, as the only means to his wise and good ends. And appreciate that the trouble as well as the deliverance are both good things in his perspective. The trouble we encounter will ideally build up our trust and reliance upon him instead of upon ourselves, and the deliverance from trouble provide us a chance of glorifying him, a chance we, will, we ought not pass up. So with Paul, consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And while in the midst of the sufferings of this present time, while in the very day of trouble, let us call upon God for our deliverance, and if he wills in his good time, he will deliver us. In doing so, we shall ascribe strength unto our God. Quote from Matthew Henry. When he, in answer to our prayers, delivers us, as he has promised to do in such a way and time as he shall think fit, we must glorify him. Not only by a grateful mention of his favor, but by living to his praise. Thus must we keep up our communion with God, meeting him with our prayers when he afflicts us and with our praises when he delivers us. Let's look together at a practical biblical model of what calling upon the Lord in a frightening day of trouble looks like. Please turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. 2 Chronicles 20, the first 12 verses. 
And here we will, we will find the plight and prayer of good King Jehoshaphat. Second Chronicles 20, the first 12 verses. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Muonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom and from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. But Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek him. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given to us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. This is a very good example for us. But let's look at verses 13 to 15. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, and son of Jeel, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. In the day of trouble, Jehoshaphat called on the Lord. And as the rest of this wonderful chapter reveals, God heard and delivered him. And the king and all the people glorified him. Jehoshaphat, though he felt fear, he ascribed strength unto his God by looking to him, not to his own meager mortal resources or those of other mortals for his deliverance. And with this kind of trust in Yahweh for our deliverance, there is also peace and confidence as well as safety. Confidence in his goodness, faithfulness, love, and power makes us to rest in him and to avoid the anxiety that inevitably arises from resting in ourselves. As Paul commands the churches in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. That thanksgiving part reveals how Paul, so trusting in God that he did not know anxiety, ascribed strength unto his God. Let us close this section of the sermon by considering and taking to heart this very same idea found also in the prophet Isaiah. Thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and in rest shall ye be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. In returning to him and resting quietly in his strength, therein is not only our salvation, but also our confidence, even our strength. Now for the third and final part of today's sermon, ascribe strength unto God after the fact. This last part of the sermon will address the all-too-human and therefore inexcusably sinful attempt to attribute a divine deliverance to something other than a divine deliverance after the fact. In all situations, other than obviously miraculous situations, God chooses to work through secondary causes. That is, he, he prefers to work through human or other natural agents to accomplish his will in this world. So he often cures by the hand of a doctor or a medication. He often punishes by means of an army, or does justice by the verdict of a judge. Or he counsels by imparting wisdom to fathers, mothers, and friends. And he instructs and he edifies by equipping and utilizing ministers, elders, and teachers. But even though we do well to thank and to appreciate the human actors who bless us in these manifold ways, we must never go on to attribute our deliverance to them or such blessings ultimately to them. We must not attribute our deliverances to the ins and outs of blind fate, ascribing credit to mere happenstance or to the dumb course of history. That is, we must never attribute our deliverance or blessings to life's seemingly mechanical succession of moments and events. We can do this without even thinking about it, so be watchful. Our flesh will seek to undermine any opportunity that arises to offer up a sacrifice of thanksgiving unto our God. We attempt to divide credit between God and blind nature. And that's happened before in the church's history at the time of that loathsome generation. They ascribed their deliverance from Egypt to both Yahweh and to the golden calf. But our God is a jealous God. He does not give his glory to another. As Calvin put it, let us not divide between us and him what he claims for himself alone. Or let us not divide between someone else or something else and him the credit due unto him for our deliverances and blessings. To give him only half the credit that is his due is to offer him half-hearted thanksgiving. Rather, let us endeavor to ascribe all strength unto our God before the trial comes with a determined and conscious policy of trust and of confidence. 
and in the day of trouble by calling upon him and him alone for our deliverance. And after the fact, with conscientious and undivided thanks and praise. Let us pray.